Welcome to the Peter King Podcast. Happy you can join us for a pretty action-packed May podcast. I am coming to you from Detroit this week. Uh, I had some work to do over at the Lions this week uh, for something you'll be reading about in the near future. So that was a good time, spending some time at a team. I don't really touch all that much, the Detroit Lions. A lot of good is happening there. Um, we've got a lot to talk about, my buddy Paul Burmeister and I from NBC Sports. Let's just go over the quick little rundown of what we'll have. First of all, our guest this week is going to be Joe Douglas, the Jets general manager. Uh, I think what I'm going to do on my last three podcasts before the break, which this is one, uh, there'll be another one May 18, another one May 25, uh, and then I'll break for the for the summer. What I'm going to do is basically pick out a team that I think is really improved and talk a little bit about that team, get somebody on a GM, player, coach, whatever from that team. Uh, so we're going to look at the Jets a little bit this week. Um, also, we've got five other topics this week. Um, we're going to talk about one of the themes in this year's draft that I thought was really quite encouraging, and that is teams not overvaluing the quarterbacks in this draft, which is a rarity in this NFL. But I think teams were very, very smart uh, this year. Uh, we're going to touch on the Giants' release of uh, their best defensive back, James Bradbury. Joe Shane, the general manager, is not fooling around. The Raiders are in some front office mayhem. Does that mean anything on the field? I pretty much am going to say no, but we'll get into that a little bit. We're going to have a deep dive into the, the odd trade between the Lions and the Vikings. Two division teams uh, making a trade that could affect the balance of power in the division for some time to come. And, you know, two other things that have come up just in the last, uh, actually one of them in the last few minutes before we record this on Tuesday morning, Tom Brady agreeing to be Fox's number one NFL analyst whenever he does retire, which I suppose will be about 2047. <laughs> and, and then um, I want to get into a little bit of the Seattle Seahawks quarterback situation from something I wrote this week in my column. And I've been bombarded with emails and, uh, and tweets about what I wrote about him. We're going to get into the Seahawks a little bit here as well. So Paul, thanks for uh, being with me again this year. How's the USFL experience this weekend? What did you have? Let's see this past weekend, I had uh, New Jersey uh, winning again. New Jersey winning for a third time in a row. And this coming weekend, fun challenge. I've, I've been working with a former Big Ten MVP and uh, eight-year NFL vet Michael Robinson in the booth the first four weeks. Uh, now we're going to have Cam Jordan, all-pro D lineman from the Saints, is going to join us for a three-man booth on Friday nights. I, I know Cam is super excited about kind of testing the waters here and seeing what it's like to be in the booth, and we're pumped to have him. So um, we'll see how the game turns out, but a three-man booth is always a fun challenge. I'm looking forward to getting to know Cam a little bit. Cam Jordan is a really smart guy and an interesting guy. First of all, 
you know, when he gets on a topic, he can talk a mile a minute. <laughs> so uh, I, I wonder, uh, I wonder if sometimes you might have to slow him down a little bit because he just, he really gets excited and he's really into what he's talking about. So I, Hey, I've always thought Cam Jordan would be a great analyst. So uh, hope everything works out with that. Um, so Paul, let's dive in right now. Uh, we're going to, as I say, we're going to be joined later on in the podcast by Joe Douglas, the GM of the Jets. I'm really curious. I look at the Jets and it's like so many other teams that you can say, man, they've done a lot, but what about the quarterback? Actually, I think there's one other worry that I would have if I were the Jets, and that is Mekhi Becton, you know, who was obviously a first-round pick at tackle a couple of years ago, started off great uh, in that four-tackle uh, first round. You remember the, the first half of the first round where four tackles were picked by the Giants, Jets, Browns, and, and Bucks, and I guess ironic is not the right word, but strange that the last pick uh Tristan Wirfs has actually turned out to be the best player so far of those four tackles but Makai Becton would worry me overall though I think what I've seen in the Jets I really really like so far and I particularly like how Joe Douglas has set up this team which is with two big trades you know, trading away Jamal Adams, trading away Sam Darnold, and essentially um, getting enough out of those two trades to build with a lot of new pieces. So I think this is the first time in a while. And again, look, there was the blip on the radar with the with the Jets, uh, with Rex Ryan and Mike Tannenbaum uh, being good six or eight years ago. But it really seems like now this is more of a long haul setup. I want to hear what you think. I thought it was fun. Uh, the, the way you introduced this, uh, th this part of your column, talking to Rich Eisen and Mike Greenberg a little bit too, longtime Jets fans. And uh, Greeny said dramatic improvements is very reasonable. I would like to, as a non-Jets fan, just as an NFL fan, I would say reasonable, reasonable improvement is realistic with the Jets. And I think that's a, a great place to start for any team. Um, but you look at, uh, to, to me, I like to sort it at this time of the, of the off season, Peter, kind of sort it into what's happening in, in your division and how do you compare after the off season moves and then into your comps in your conference. So you start with the AFC East and they're the fourth best team. I mean, last year they were the only team in the AFC East, Peter, that didn't have a winning yeah. record. They were five games behind the other team that was just ahead of them, the Miami Dolphins. So where are they right now compared to Miami? Are they closer? I would say yes. But again, realistically, they were quite a ways behind the next worst team in their division when the season ended. And the comps in the AFC, they're, they're with the Jaguars and the Texans. So you look at the Jets, Jags, and Texans, where do the Jets stack up? I would say they had the most encouraging offseason, uh, but – Let's start with what's realistic. And I think, you know, if, if they double their wins from last year, they're right around 500. And I think that's a realistic hope for any Jets fan um, before they start charging into thinking that a sexy draft can lead to 11 or 12 wins. I really like that thought. 
of being a little bit more realistic. And one of the things you'll hear from Joe Douglas is that, you know, I think a lot of times when you look at the quarterback situation, like for instance, the Detroit Lions, everybody knows there's tremendous pressure on Jared Goff, you know, and while I have been in Detroit, I met with Goff uh, on Monday and, and look, here's the thing with Jared Goff. He's an accurate passer. And, and if you ask him to complete the throws that are there, uh, I think that's the smartest thing you do with Jared Goff. You don't ask him to do too much that he's not really capable of doing. There was a time early on uh, in the, in the rise of the Rams. I remember a Thursday night game against the Vikings where he was a bombs away guy, but that just, that was more of, you know, a, a, a cameo in Jared Goff. It, I think of the same thing right now with Zach Wilson. We don't really know who Zach Wilson is. We don't know what he is. And as a quarterback, you know what I want him to do? I want him to take the throws that are there. I don't want him to do too much. I thought one of the things the Patriots did last year with Mac Jones that was very smart. They brought in, uh, you know, two big tight ends in free agency. And they tried to make this kind of like going back to a Gronk Hernandez kind of offensive style. And I think in some ways, the New York Jets have taken a page out of that playbook by adding a couple of veteran tight ends, particularly C.J. Uzoma of, uh, uh, from Cincinnati, who I, in my opinion, I think that's a big loss for the Bengals. And I think it's a big get for the Jets. Give your quarterback a security blanket. And, and, and Paul, the, the thing I want to ask you about Zach Wilson is that at least to me, when I look at this team, I want him to get a running back who's very good at catching the ball out of the backfield. Brees Hall is that guy, the best pass catching running back among the good backs in this draft. And then secondarily get a tight end who can really help you out. And to me, that's another thing I really like that what Joe Douglas has done. Just give me a thought or two about the importance of playmakers in the short and intermediate game to a young quarterback. Obviously it's huge, Peter. And I, I think if you look at uh, specifically the situation with the Jets right now, you bring up a couple very good points about how they have plausibly enhanced the tight end position with Uzoma, Ruckert, third round pick out of Ohio State. Let's also not forget, and also Brees Hall, but let's keep in mind also their pass catchers, even though it wasn't an explosive offense, I thought they had a nice group of pass catchers last year and they bring back the core of that this year as well. So it's a group that wasn't bad last year and it's back and it should be better with what they brought in. I think that's huge for his competence uh, for his off season. And we'll see what it means uh, for the actual season. Uh, but knowing we were going to talk about Zach quite a bit today, Peter, I went back, I picked out two games to watch every throw that he made in two games from last year. I picked out his very first game at Carolina. And then instead of choosing one of his worst games, it is may it's time to be positive. I chose the overtime win against Tennessee. And what I saw, what really impressed me the most, Peter, 
his best football, or he had a lot of good series after he had the typical, whether you want to say it's Jets quarterback-ish or rookie quarterback-ish confusion, sacks, turnovers. He would have stretches of that. And then he played some really good series and made some big throws later in the game in a tight game. And I thought that showed some really good mental toughness, which is something you don't really know about a kid coming out of BYU. And we also saw a number of times, Peter, that that ability that we saw in the pro day where it's like, wow, in an instant, he can make that ball go from here to there. I wonder if he can do that on Sundays. Didn't do it all the time, but you saw enough of it to go along with the mental toughness to where I read last year is a small win for him and what the team has done around him. I think there's every reason to be encouraged, again, realistically, not playoff-wise, but realistically, that this team could double their wins from last year. Yeah, I would agree with you. And and, uh, you'll hear from Joe Douglas a little bit later in the podcast, but did want to touch a bit on the Jets before we heard from from Joe Douglas. Um, Paul, next topic. Uh, What one... Uh, top club official told me the other day, which is, this was a really sensible draft. And, and I asked him, what you mean? He goes, well, people really didn't reach for players the way they normally did. And he used two things as an, as an example. You know, one quarterback picked in the top 70. You know, teams didn't say, I'm not going to, there's a lot of things that happen if you take a quarterback, let's say number 32 or even number 36 or or number 40, you put expectations on him because of where he was picked. And in this draft, you know, the next quarterback after Kenny Pickett, who's going to challenge for the Pittsburgh Steelers starting quarterback job, the next quarterback was number 74, Desmond Ritter. When you're picked 74th, no one looks at you and says, well, okay, let's see. When's he going to play? October 1st, November 1st? You know, chances are, unless uh, Marcus Mariota really struggles, uh, Desmond Ritter is not going to see much, if any, playing time this year. Ditto with Malik Willis at number 86. When you're picked 86th in the draft, you're not expected as a quarterback to contribute right away. Carolina, Matt Corral, number 94, okay? The the exact same thing. If you're picked 74, 86, 94, no one sits there in your home market and puts pressure on you the way that Chicago Bears fans put pressure on Matt Nagy uh, almost from the first day of training camp last year to play Justin Fields immediately. When you're a high first round pick, you're drafted in the first half of the first round, there's going to be that pressure. There's one other part of this draft, though, and we're going to get into this in a little more depth in a couple of minutes. But this this uh, actually was a club president said to me, the other part of this draft that I really liked was Minnesota trading down from 12 to 32. Time will tell who's right. Time will tell if Detroit got the better of the trade, if Jamison Williams, the wide receiver from Alabama, is going to be a great wide receiver and worth trading up for. But Minnesota traded down from 12 to 32, in the words of this guy, uh, for, and, and he's absolutely right, because this is basically what, you know, what the Vikings have said. 
they weren't in love with a player at 12. They needed a corner or corners, uh, but they trade down to 32 and they get a hard-hitting safety, Lewis Seen, and basically they played the draft and said, rather than getting three picks in the top, I think it was 60, we'll get four picks in the top 65 and we'll be happier with that with that outcome rather than taking a pick at 12 that we didn't love. And this veteran club president said, teams read this draft the right way. I just thought that was a smart thing to say. And that's kind of the way I view this draft. Give me your thoughts. I want to back up. So it kind of what you started that with Peter. And I love this topic about how it ended up with the quarterbacks. It, it wasn't a great group. It wasn't a super fun group that gave us a lot of headlines to really dive into throughout March and April, other than man, will there only be one go in the first round? And does that one quarterback deserve to go? I think in the end, it's really best case scenario for the quarterbacks that went rounds one and three, and also for the teams. And you brought up a couple of terms there, manage expectations that don't often go along with the quarterback and the, and the draft. And I think it works for this year. And a couple of really good examples. Think about Kenny Pickett going at 20 and who's going to be his mentor there in Pittsburgh, Mitch Trubisky, at least for a year. How much different would Mitch Trubisky's life been if he would have gone at 20 instead of two when he came out? You wouldn't have this whole... <laughs> God, they, Such a they, smart thing. They didn't take Patrick Mahomes and they took you. He had that over his head. As soon as Mahomes became Mahomes... There was really not a winning solution for Mitch Trubisky to be a decent to good quarterback in Chicago because he always had that hanging over him. Look at Tua in Miami. They took you instead of Justin Herbert. Oh, my gosh, what a mistake. He's got that forever. It's kind of part of whatever he does in Miami. Jalen Hurts also in the same class. There's pressure right. on Jalen in Philadelphia. Not nearly the same because he went in round two. I uh, just so. I, I love right. what happened there in this overriding theme with the quarterback. Late in round two also. Exactly. Yeah, there you go. But the these teams are kind of like it, taking them in rounds three this year. And also Kenny Pickett at 20 instead of the top 10. It's like, we're interested. We're intrigued instead of we're attaching our entire franchise to you. Good luck dealing with that. So um, their camps may be disappointed where they went. I, I, I think it worked out really well for these quarterbacks. Paul, you know what really brings me back to prehistoric times about this draft? You know, and, I, and this just occurred to me last night when I was looking at it. When is the last time there was one quarterback and running back co combined, pick it at 20, and that was the only running back or quarterback picked in the top 35? Wow. Of this draft. Brees yeah. Hall obviously was next at 36. But I think what we're seeing is basically the dawn of an era. We'll see if this year was an outlier or basically the start of something. But I believe what you're seeing is teams are no longer willing to say about quarterbacks, well, we don't believe in this guy all the way but we kind of like him so he's a quarterback so let's take him 22 you know I'm reminded of the Browns taking Brandon Whedon 
I think, at 22. Now, nobody could have looked at Brandon Weed and said, he's the quarterback for the next 10 years. He was a chance that the Browns took. You know, and, and Johnny Manziel, and I don't mean to just pick on the Browns, but a lot of teams have picked quarterbacks because they say, hey, it's an important position. Even though he's not flawless, let's take him. And, 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 and I want to segue into the, the one sort of, I, I mean, casualty is the wrong word. I mean, it's a ridiculous word to use when we're talking about a draft. But you obviously every week are in close contact and do pods and, and uh, uh, you know, have long conversations with Chris Sims. And I really respect Chris Sims uh, and his analysis and his breakdown of quarterbacks. And I, this thought just occurred to me. I wish I had picked up the phone and called Chris for my column right after the draft and said, all right, Chris, I'm going to let you riff now. What did you think of Matt Corral of 93 picks passing before Matt Corral gets picked? The guy in this draft who you love. So I'm sure you guys have talked about it. What did you think of that? And what did he think of that? I think he was surprised that Matt Corral didn't go higher. I mean, uh, unless he changed something at the last minute, I think I remember this correctly. I think he had Matt as his number one quarterback in this class. So the fact that a team yeah. gets him yeah. in the third round, I mean, Carolina, I am sure thought long and hard about getting their quarterback in the future at six. They get, according to Chris, the most talented one in the third round. And for all the reasons I just mentioned about managing expectations and what it means for the team and what it means for the quarterback, um, it's, it's really perfect. And he gets to sit behind a guy in Sam Darnold. And what a crazy turn the last couple months have made for Sam. I mean, he is now the guy heading into the season. We didn't think that was going to be yeah. the case in the winter and a lot of this offseason. So, um, it's a, it's a perfect snapshot of what happened in this class uh, and the view of them going in. Uh, Chris thought this was the best guy, a team that needs a quarterback desperately, they think, gets him in round three. I think it works out well for both sides. For the world's greatest athletes. This is the showdown we've been waiting for. There is nothing like competing on the world's biggest stage. And when that stage is Paris, anything can happen. I have never seen anything like this. How about that? In Olympics unlike any other. What a performance! The Paris Olympics. This summer on NBC and streaming on Peacock. Paul, well, let's... Uh, this is not anything I want to sp spend a lot of time on, but I just I was really curious what you thought now. So the Las Vegas Raiders have basically, you know, denuded their front office again. You know, uh, really in the, in the last year, they have been through two basically CEOs of their organization, um, two other top executives, and they made a change at general manager, made two changes at coach. And... I wonder, just from your perspective, like I look at this and I say, man, I, 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 it's, there are a lot of headlines, but I just don't really know how much this touches the football team. 
all the sort of mayhem going on with the owner, Mark Davis and everything. I think as I wrote my column, if I were Josh McDaniels and Dave Ziegler, I'd draw a line of demarcation um, between the football side and the business side, Hmm. because obviously there's some problems on the business side. From your experience and just from your sort of knowledge of pro football, do you think that a player is really that concerned when the CEO of the team, they make two big changes in that one job over like an eight month period? Or are you just going in and doing my job? Hey, there's nothing I can do about that. That's above my pay grade. I don't think the player really cares or feels it. And I mean, for that side of it, Peter, I mean, you look at the Raiders, if they went from a team that hasn't been that good to they were awfully close to winning a playoff game last year. So there's somewhere around good and competitive and whether they take this jump this year, isn't going to have much to do or anything to do with the business side. I mean, what are they going to do on third and sevens against Herbert Mahomes and Wilson? Okay. Does the business side have that much to do with that? Probably not. I mean, can Derek Carr go from, a really good quarterback to a top 10 type quarterback. I don't know if what's happening on the business side has much to do with, with if he makes that very difficultly. I will say, and I, I don't ask this rhetorically, Peter, like I really wonder, is there a team that's made a big leap uh, or that has been living in the really good of the NFL, whether you want to pick out Baltimore or New England, any other team that's been good for a long time, do they have this going on on the other side of the building? I mean, is it a coincidence that no teams come to mind when I say, okay, business side is a, at least a temporary or permanent mess, but man, the head coach, GM, quarterback, coordinator thing is going great, and it does every year. I don't know if there's an example out there of a team, and if there is, I'd love to hear about it, but on one hand, yes, no. I agree with you. On the other hand, maybe there's a reason why we can't think of another team where the business side is in kind of permanent disarray, some version of it and is still really good. I, I, I don't know if that exists. Yeah, <clears throat> look, Mark Davis has always been sort of a shadowy figure. Um, you know, he, he isn't around the team as a lot, as often as a lot of owners are, you know, as far as, you know, touching the players and all that stuff. Um, but <clears throat> I think my overriding thought when I saw this story is, my first thought is, man, there's just too much mayhem around this team. My second thought is, look, Josh McDaniels and Dave Ziegler grew up in this business under Bill Belichick. And Bill Belichick's thought is, and I'm going to cross, uh, I'm going to kind of crossbreed a a bad cliche, but Bill Belichick keeps the main thing the main thing. And he doesn't care about any of the other stuff. He doesn't care about what's going on outside the locker room, outside the building. Um, You saw so many times the scandals that have racked the Patriots. And yet all they were, they were a machine. They just kept winning. So I think that Belichick and Ziegler have been trained well. I don't think this is going to be a big deal for the Raiders. Next topic, James Bradbury cut by the New York Giants. So you could make the argument, pro football focus could make this argument, that the Giants' most effective player, best player on defense over the last two years, it's not a slam dunk, but it could be 
uh, you know, the, the uh, quarterback, uh, I'm sorry, the cornerback of this off of this defense, who was easily the best guy in that secondary and was a guy who, when Joe Shane took over, he did not want to have to get rid of, but at the end of the day, you know, I thought that, uh, that Paul Schwartz of the New York Post had a great statement in his story when he wrote about this, and I'm just going to read it to you. The sins of the past regime could not be reconciled by the current front office, and as a result, quarterback James Bradbury is no longer a member of the Giants. And the reason that that's perfect is James Bradbury is the kind of player that a winning team wants. Some team out there, maybe it'll be Kansas City. Uh, that's a team that I've heard is very interested in him. Uh, somebody is going to get a good player uh, out of James Bradbury. But the reason that this had to happen is that <clears throat> the past general manager, Dave Gettleman, signed some awful contracts that the new general manager has to live with. The contract for James Bradbury is excessive. I wouldn't call it awful because he's a good player, but it was excessive. And, you know, the, the other options that were available to him were going to be more onerous. So they saved $10 million on the cap this year. They're going to have, I think, $10.7 million of dead money instead of paying him. 21.8 million this year. So they saved 10.1 million, but it's just another example. In my opinion, the Giants stayed a year too long with Dave Gettleman, and it's really going to hamstring the recovery of this team. But I give Joe Shane credit. He bit the bullet. He took his castor oil. Uh, people of a certain age will know what I'm talking about, but he took his medicine and he took it basically right from the start he said to people that this is going to be a painful process we're going to have to get rid of some good players and this week obviously he got rid of James Bradbury I have one thought and, and one question about this Peter my thought is the salary cap and when you inherit one that another boss left you the salary cap is going to force you to make some really difficult calls and he had to make a tough call so he did it and for that part you know if you're a Giants fan I think you have to understand my question is why couldn't they move him? I know the contract wasn't great, but why couldn't they finesse it, adjust, and get some kind of draft pick for him in the last couple of weeks? I think what happened, Paul, is that everybody knew that the Giants were going to have to cut. We're going to have to get, get rid of him. And when teams smell blood in the water like that, when opposing teams smell blood in the water, they basically say, uh, hey, um, we understand that there's going to be blood in the water. We understand that you have to make this move. We're not going to bail you out and throw you a fifth or sixth round pick for a good player. We're going to wait until you do this, and then we're going to make our own deal with them. Um, and we don't have to abide by the current contract. We're going to make our own deal with them. And I think that's exactly what happened in this particular case. And, and look, it's not like, uh, you know, that the Giants are in some great cap situation now, okay? By making this cut now, 
they now have $14.7 million of cap space this year. So they will be allowed now, you know, to sign all their rookies, to fund a practice squad, to have a little rainy day money left over. But that's exactly what was so important for the Giants to do uh, in getting rid of this player. Now, I mentioned uh, Kansas City and Kansas City, if it so chooses, could have the money to do this. I'll tell you a team I would watch for. This is going to sound crazy. I would watch for the Saints. The reason I'd watch for the Saints is that the Saints have been in a lot of cap trouble, okay? But they're in a situation now where they got 19 million. They have more than enough to sign their draft choices now, led by Chris Olave. But I think this is a team that has wanted to get better in the back end. They've helped themselves a lot at safety. Uh, and obviously now with Tyron Matthew, but they still could use some help at the cornerback position. So, I mean, I think a good team out there is going to get better uh, with, uh, with James Bradbury. Paul, let's move on. Um, you know, when I was getting ready to, to try to figure out what to talk about this week, um, there were a lot of kind of semi-urgent things, but the one thing that really struck me when I wrote my column and I got a lot of response from people, I basically said in my column that I thought that the Seattle Seahawks should basically not go out and get Baker Mayfield, who's a round peg in a square hole for the Seattle Seahawks. They want to be a running team with a traditional quarterback. Um, and, and, you know, Baker Mayfield is a, is a run around, make things happen type of player. Uh, that's not really the offense that Pete Carroll and, and that uh, offensive system is. So I say, don't go get Baker Mayfield. The Seattle Seahawks, in my opinion, this should be a year where they take their medicine. And this should be a year where they adjust and plot themselves for the future. Because just remember next year, they have Denver's first and second round picks from the Russell Wilson trade. They have their own first and second round picks. Now, Denver could totally prove me wrong, but if Denver and Seattle both do not make the playoffs, that means that John Schneider and the Seahawks will have four of the top 50 picks in the draft next year. And my thought is it's gonna be a very good year for quarterbacks. Hold your powder, relax, do the best thing you can this year for your team. Tell your owner, Jody Allen, look, we might go four and 13. We're not going to have a great year probably this year, but this is a year we can find out if Drew Locke is a keeper. And if he isn't, we can enter the draft next year with the kind of ammunition to go get one of these bright young quarterbacks. I'm really curious, Paul, on what you think of their quarterback situation and whether Drew Locke and Geno Smith is uh, remotely realistic to get through a year. How do you look at it? I look at the quarterback situation through the lens of not only the right now, Peter, but what they've had the last 10 years. And let's say Russell Wilson was still there. Questions throughout the team. But if you, if you said, okay, let's talk about the NFC West, Paul. Who's the biggest challenger to the Los Angeles Rams? If Russell Wilson was there, 
Seattle's in the conversation, whether they should or shouldn't be, because they had always been yeah. when he's the quarterback. Now, because of the quarterback situation, I would say Seattle is the fourth team in the NFC West. And if, if with their current yeah. quarterbacks, Locke and Smith, if they're able to be competitive, I mean, that's a standard deviation or two up from what I expect. I mean, I don't think they'll get average quarterback play, NFL, you know, circles wise, compared to what everybody else is doing with those two. Now, if there is such a thing and you, you bring it up, hey, let's take our medicine. Let's tell the owner we're going to have four or five wins. If there's a team that has a decade of goodwill equity that can get away with that, the GM head coach combination, it would be Seattle. If, if a team has a right to that, I don't know if they do or not, but if there is a team that does have a right to it, it is Seattle. Uh, but if they go with Smith and Locke, I, I think mediocre quarterback play would be a pleasant surprise for them. Paul, the, the last item before we get to Joe Douglas is something that just was a topic from this uh, draft that I didn't write enough about, I didn't talk enough about, I didn't really look into. So here in Detroit, you know, they're very, very excited about this draft, about this year. Dan Campbell said he was at his, uh, his daughter's, I think, volleyball match over the weekend. And everybody was coming up to him and said, hey, tell Brad Holmes he did a really good job. <laughs> and usually they're, hey, coach, you're doing a great job with the Lions, but everybody was very happy with the Lions moving up from 30, obviously getting Aiden Hutchinson and moving from 32 to 12 to get a guy who is acknowledged as, as one of the best receivers in this class, Jamison Williams, even though uh, he's uh, injured, you know, he's got a torn ACL uh, from the end of the Alabama football season. But I found this very interesting in talking to Brad Holmes. He said he's always had this philosophy, don't draft hurt players in the first round. And the thought as, as he was watching Jamison Williams and watching the receivers in this class, he just said, my gosh, Jamison Williams is so good, I might have to break my rule. So he came in about two weeks before the draft and told Dan Campbell, and Dan was euphoric when he said that because he loved Jamison Williams. So uh, they ended up working out a deal. And, and a lot of people would say, oh, don't trade in your division. Uh, you know, and my whole attitude when somebody says don't trade in your division is why? If you are going to be better, if your team is going to be better. Okay. And, and look, we don't know now whether the Minnesota Vikings and the Detroit Lions will be tangibly affected by this trade. You know, it's easy to say, oh boy, that trade's going to make a huge difference. But, you know, it, 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 was, it, was, it was driven home to me. You know, Brad Holmes basically saying, we're not going to be married to what people think in the past was like forbidden you know if it makes sense for our team we're going to do it and i'm sure that uh quasi, quasi adolfo mensa uh felt basically the exact same way paul i just want to ask you this question so 
I think the Detroit Lions are better with a potentially great receiver who may only play four to six games this year, but 2023 and beyond, he could be a top wide receiver in the NFL. Meanwhile, you've got the Minnesota Vikings, who, in my opinion, went into this draft really wanting to get better at both positions in the secondary and wanted to prepare for the post Harrison Smith life. And they get Lewis seen a guy who was one of the top five players in terms of when I would ask people in the league, who should I put in the first round? Who I don't have there right now. Everybody said Lewis seen, I love this guy. Love the way he plays safety from Georgia, but they also uh, in making this trade, we're also able to get two other corners in the first 120 picks. Andrew Booth Jr. from Clemson at 42, and also uh, a Caleb Evans from Missouri at 118 early in the fourth round. And Paul, I think the way I look at this, and I've thought about it a long time, is that I would bet right now that Quasi Adolfo Mensa was going to be uncomfortable picking at 12. Even if he got Kyle Hamilton, I don't think he would have felt like that was a perfect player for their team right now. And he knew that there were safeties who were going to be available later in the first round and high in the second that he liked almost as much as Kyle Hamilton. I know that this is a weird topic and I don't know precisely because it's impossible to know right now who won. But I'm so curious of all the angles in this story, uh, what really strikes you about two teams in the same division making this huge draft day trade? I've always wondered about this, this old draft law, this unwritten rule that you can't trade within your division, Peter. And I'm, I'm glad someone, two someones are starting to tear it down because if you have... If you have your board and you know if you get a trade, and everybody always says we're open for business, so why do you shut down that business offer if it's within your division? So let's say that they make that trade with a team in the AFC. That team in the AFC with that player could screw them if they're playing them in December uh, out of a win that they needed as well. Okay, so they don't play them twice in a season, but I've just never agreed with that philosophy. And so I'm glad Minnesota and Detroit did this. I'd like to see more of it. And I think bigger picture, Peter, I love how some of these old draft rules are being torn down. And again, look at the Rams. Is it a good idea? Brad Holmes says he doesn't want to draft injured players in the first round. Is it a good idea to trade high round picks to get a pass rusher in his 30s you're going to get half a season out of? Well, if it's Vaughn Miller making plays in the postseason that contribute to you winning a Super Bowl, yeah, forget about that old rule that you never would have done that for the previous 30 years. It worked out because it was courageous, it was new, it was bold, and they were rewarded for that. So I like that these old draft rules are being chucked aside a little bit. And I've always thought teams, if they really want to make a deal and someone offers that deal, but, oh, they're in our division, I've never agreed that they shouldn't be open to it. So to me, I, I like everything about it. You know, Mike Sando at The Athletic, I think he does a fabulous job. Um, he wrote a, a column after the draft with, you know, quoting a lot of um, 
I guess, general managers, high front office people who he knows from his years covering the NFL. And I thought reading that, it was really enlightening, first of all. There's a lot of knowledge I picked up from it. But I sense that there still are a lot of, you know, top uh, GMs, top scouts, everything, who are essentially uh, playing by yesterday's rules. Honestly, they they are they are still, uh, you know. I think if you gave them sodium pentothal, they don't care if the Rams won the Super Bowl. M- many many GMs are like this. If it is not sustainable, they have no interest in it. I'd really love to talk to a bunch of general managers and just ask them, what would you rather be? Would you rather be a team that won 10, 11, 12 games every year and never won a Super Bowl? Or would you like to be a team that won a Super Bowl and it would be like you sold your soul to the devil? And that's it. You know, after that, you, you, you're just going to be scrapping and clawing and, and, and all that, which, by the way, isn't what the Rams are now because they have Matthew Stafford uh, and they've got Aaron Donald for at least one more year. So they're not in that category. But I think sometimes, and I, I struggle with this too, because all the years of Andy Reid in Philadelphia, I remember saying to him on one of my training camp trips, I said, you know what I like about your team? This was maybe in 2008 or nine, but like, I said, you know what I like about your team and your organization? Your fans, I, we were up at Lehigh where they had training camp at that time, uh, university in Northeastern Pennsylvania. They were up at Lehigh, and I remember saying, I said, you know what I like about your team? Every July 30th, every August 10th, if you're an Eagles fan, you can be excited because you've got a legitimate chance to make a Super Bowl run. I'm not saying you're going to win a Super Bowl, but you're in the pennant race every year. And I like that. I think that is a really great, admirable way to go. But now I really struggle with thinking, would I trade? The Von Miller example is a great example. You know, you trade, I think it was the uh, 64th and 96th picks in the draft and got whatever, 10 or 12 games out of Von Miller. And that's it. He's gone. But Paul, you said it. You said exactly the truth. I watched the postseason. I watched the Super Bowl. Von Miller was the second most important Ram, you know, on defense, you know, late in that, I mean, in that Super Bowl. I think the plays that he made, maybe third most important guy on defense, the plays that he made tangibly, absolutely were a big factor in them winning the Super Bowl. And so am I going to miss the 64th and 96th picks? Yes. Uh, would I have, would we have won the Super Bowl without Von Miller? Maybe slash probably, but no guarantee right there. I don't know. It's a, it's a topic that it's almost like you start pulling a thread and, you know, you just keep going and going and going. 
And what you on earth is just really, it's one of the reasons why I found that there are really interesting topics to talk about in May about yes. the NFL. Yeah. Because when I think about that, I say, man, that's, that is really a, a, a heck of a deal. I'm sorry. I, I took so long talking about that, but I don't know. Sometimes I just start thinking about things like that, about draft value, draft trades, reaching for players and things like that. And I just say to myself, Hey, listen, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Yeah. We've been talking about the draft a lot. I mean, since, since February, Peter, and we, we didn't hit any one of these weeks where we set up your podcast with the goal of talking about aggressive GMs and how draft old draft rules with trades have been thrown out. It's just, it kind of organically came up in a number of examples and like, to, to kind of echo what you just said, that's why reflecting in May is fun. You can kind of look back and see what stood out and what still interests you. And we didn't seek out this topic, uh, but as we, as we, you know, had a goal of talking about the draft and hopefully insightful and interesting ways, it kept coming up with different teams in different ways. And, and I think it's fun when new themes like that come up, even though the draft has a lot of things that feel the same every year, it's cool that we get some new topics to address too. Paul Burmeister, thanks so much for this. I'm going to uh, go to my conversation right now with Joe Douglas, the general manager of the Jets. Um, so much to talk about with Joe Douglas. And I think you'll hear and also see if you watch this, that Joe Douglas is really confident about what they are doing. And if I were him, I'd have that same amount of confidence. For the world's greatest athletes. This is the showdown we've been waiting for. There is nothing like competing on the world's biggest stage. It's a world record again! Go for the United States! Unbelievable! And when that stage is Paris, anything can happen. I have never seen anything like this! How about that? An Olympics unlike any other. What a performance! The Paris Olympics. This summer on NBC and streaming on Peacock. Confidence. Back on the podcast, joined by Joe Douglas, general manager of the Jets. And Joe, um, it's been a long time, I think, since the guy who, uh, I live in Brooklyn, and there's a guy named Joe uh, somebody who's a big Jets fan, and there's a building going up across the way from our building. And he's got Jets stickers all over his helmet. And when I'm out walking my dog once a month, I see the guy and he said, Peter, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? And so I saw him recently and he said, Peter, this is a very big draft. I said, yeah, I know, but I have not seen him, but I think he's got to be like euphoric with all the rest of the Jets fans. And Joe, you pick Sauce Gardner, number four overall, then you go Garrett Wilson, the receiver from Ohio State. Uh, number 10, and then you trade back up into the first round. You get Jermaine Johnson, the pass rusher who dropped at number 26. And then you get the consensus best running back in the draft uh, with Brees Hall at number 36 overall. And I guess I'll just ask you, do you feel the excitement of the Jets fans? Well, I certainly hope Joe's happy. I hope Joe's <laughs> fired up next time you see him. But uh no, I mean, we're excited. We feel like um, for two years, um, we've had some, some things bounce our way when it comes to, uh, to the draft and how the board fall, fell with our rankings. Um, but for us to get 
four players that we that we had ranked inside of our top 20 um, in the first 36 picks. Um, couldn't be couldn't be more excited. So know that we still have a lot of work to do and you know, getting them in the building, working with them, developing developing them, getting with our staff and our and our performance team and player engagement. But uh, we feel like we had we were able to get seven seven players that can come in here and help this franchise. Joe, I want to just go a little bit granular on this now. It sounded like when you were picking at number four, really, you were very, very nervous from what I've heard and read that you did not know what Houston was going to do. You probably had a pretty good feel that if it was Trayvon Walker at number one, it was going to be Aiden Hutchinson at two to Detroit. But Tell me your thought process and what your little uh, your little lines in the water out there told you about Houston and whether you were really kind of nervous about what Houston would do. Yeah, yeah there was a, a lot of nervousness. And, you know, I feel like in the draft in general this year, I think if you went to 32 different teams and asked them who their top five were at every position, there'd be a little bit of difference. Um, there probably wouldn't be a consensus. And so um, you, you had a pretty good idea on what was going to happen at one and two, felt pretty good. Um, but, uh, you know, with Nick and Houston and, and, and Nick's, Nick's so good at what he does and, and has been for a long time and, uh, you know, nothing gets out of there. And uh, he does he does such a good job of, of keeping Nick uh, Casario has 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 been schooled under Bill Belichick. That's right. At very, very well, I might add. That's right. And, you know, you know, nothing's getting out of there uh, with Nick. And so um, you hear rumblings. You know, OK, they're, they're, they might like this guy. They may like this guy, but you don't really know. Right. And so um, you're just sitting there the whole time and pick three, you know, fingers crossed uh, that your guy, your guy falls. And, uh, you know, obviously their guy fell to them and our guy fell to us. And, you know, uh, we were we were so excited to add sauce. Was there a big difference between the players, Derek Stingley and Sauce Gardner? Well, I think with both of those guys, I think in a draft without a lot of consensus, I think the consensus would be that those were the top two corners in this year's draft. And then uh, I, I think once you get to a certain level of player, you know, it's, it's what's, what's your flavor. And I think, uh, you know, obviously um, both, both players are outstanding, uh, outstanding people, outstanding players. Uh, and, and we, we felt that, you know, with a guy like sauce and, and what, what he brings uh, from a competitive makeup, from a, a production standpoint, um, how much he loves the game, how, how much he loves to compete, that he was just a perfect, perfect fit for us and what we're trying to build. Joe, is that, I know how much tape you must have watched on Sauce Gardner and the sort of cliche stat of this draft as it pertained to Sauce Gardner was 1100 college snaps in some sort of pass coverage. And he was never responsible in man coverage for a touchdown pass. Is that real? <laughs> That's real uh, and rare, real and rare. Um, you know, very impressive. It's uh, it's funny. You know, he's he's in here for his top thirty visit in our building, and and uh, we're sitting down and talking, and uh, it, 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 we're just talking about that particular stat, right? And he says, you know, in their playoff game this year against Alabama, he was asked by a reporter, 
you know, how are you going to feel if uh, this is the game you give up, uh, you give up your first touchdown. And I love it because this kind of is an insight into him and his mentality. And, uh, you know, I don't know, I didn't go back to see what his response was, but uh, him describing to me was, why would I ever go into a game thinking this is going to be a game I give up touchdown? Why would I ever line up on a play and think this is going to be anything else than, than success? You know, it's just like, this is a guy that has a lot of self-confidence, really comfortable in his own skin. And uh, it, it was a, it was a great meeting with him. Let me go to number 10 now with Garrett Wilson. That the receiver group really interested me because when I was preparing to do my mock draft, I ended up having receivers 8, 9, 10, 11, because so many people loved these receivers so much. And I'm curious, how did you differentiate the top receivers in this draft? Yeah, that, that was a really tough one because there were quite a few um, receivers and every, every, single, every single receiver brought something different and dynamic. And it, you had guys that could run by anybody. You had big body guys with unbelievable catch radius. Uh, you had guys that were just pure route runners. You had, you had, you had guys that could almost play wide receiver like a running back. Um, ultimately, we felt like the guy that had the best combination of all those traits was Garrett Wilson. Um, and uh, a guy that had the route skill, the, the ball skills, the catch radius, the ability to attack the ball and make contested catches, um, the ability to, to uh, make people miss, run after catch, create explosive plays in space, and a guy that, could, that had the top end speed to get behind defenses and threaten them vertically. We felt we felt like this, this was the guy that had the best combination of all the traits we were looking for. I want to ask you a little bit about um, Jermaine Johnson in this way, sort of, you know, a couple of questions about him. What I found really interesting about Jermaine Johnson is that going into, and again, I do not study these guys. I want to try to figure out who's going to pick them. And what was really, really interesting is that there were two players when I was, you know, in the week or so running up to the draft, I was trying to figure out where they were going to go. And I could not figure out where Jermaine Johnson was going to go. And I could not figure out where Malik Willis was going to go. And I was definitely going to put Jermaine Johnson in the first round. And I wanted to put Willis in the first round, but I just couldn't find a team that it looked like, you know, was like really excited about him. I just, I couldn't do it. Jermaine Johnson, though, is a really different story because he never had the real opportunity because of the richness of talent at Georgia before he transferred to Florida State. And I wanted to know what sold you on Jermaine Johnson, given the fact that until this past fall, he had not had the great opportunities that a guy you could see Aiden Hutchinson on tape because he's playing all the time. Right. But a, and a lot of these Georgia guys, you just couldn't necessarily make that judgment. So how did you make that judgment and how did you kind of fall in love with Jermaine Johnson that way? You know, I think one of the uh, more interesting and cool things about this draft was really the, the player, the situation you're describing with Jermaine, there was almost an exact same situation um, with Jamison Williams at, uh, 
going from Ohio State to Alabama. So, you know, you had two guys that uh, started, one started Georgia, one started Ohio State, a very deep, uh, very, very crowded, very talented room. And they bet on themselves, right? They, they, made, they made a difficult decision. They went to, a, to a, another school and it ended up working out uh, for both of them. But in Jermaine's case, uh, obviously that's a tough decision to leave a defense like that. Um, we saw how many guys were drafted off of Georgia's defenses here and how much success they had as a team. And so um, when, when we spent time with him at the combine, the senior bowl and the 30 visit, you know, it was important for us to really dive into the whys in that decision. Um, and then just, just to get to know him as a person. And so through that process, having those, those three different touch points, really more than that, if you count the, the pro days and Zoom calls, with all those touch points, uh, we know that this was a guy that was a very unique com competitor um, and, and, and a guy that, that believed in himself uh, and a guy that was willing to do extra um, to, to, to hone his craft and, and, and work on his craft. And um, ultimately, one of the things that we loved about Jermaine as a player was he has so many different ways that he can get to the quarterback. You know, he's got a speed rush. He's got a counter move. He's got an inside spin. He's got an outside spin. He's got a speed to power. He's got a push pull. And all of those things, all of those different moves, all those different tools in his toolbox were self-made in, in some, of the, some of the stories that he would tell us. So um, we knew that at the end of the day, this was a guy that's not going to be denied. Um, if he has a goal, he's going to do whatever he's got to do. Can you tell me, tell me, tell me one of those stories, if you can, what, what was it about what he told you about whatever self-made stuff that he, that he taught himself or that he worked hard to develop himself? Yeah. You know, um, just sitting down with them and asking him because just saying exactly what I said earlier, Jermaine, I see you. I see all these different ways you get to the quarterback, but I heard at your previous stop that you guys didn't really have a ton of practice one-on-ones uh, pass rush. And uh, I like, how did you develop these moves? And he just said, well, uh, I would just YouTube uh, all these different pass rush moves and I would go out on the field and work on them by myself in the off season. And I said, well, you didn't have a pass rush specialist coach or anything like that. He said, no. Um, I, I just kind of did this myself and worked on it myself. And That's pretty cool. It, it obviously paid off for him at Florida State. He, he, uh, he, he's, he has a lot of different moves. I like that about somebody who basically says, I'm going to figure it out. Right. I, I think that's a that's an admirable trait for him. No doubt. No yeah. doubt. He's not going to be denied. Um, you have any idea why a guy who some people in this draft loved and really were very, very high on? I think Daniel Jeremiah had him like ninth on his list and everybody had him higher than 26. What's your theory on what happened to him? You know, I, I really don't have a theory. Um, you know, for us, we felt we felt really good about our process leading up to the draft. And uh, for us, he was he was inside of our top ten, and uh, we did a lot of we did a lot of work uh, getting to know him, um, talking to as many different coaches uh, as we could. So you know, we felt we felt comfortable. 
making this move up and, uh, and, and going to get them, you know, um, not, not being able to speak for every other team, um, you know, so you, when you put your plan together, you get, you get locked in on certain people and, you know, maybe Jermaine wasn't one of those guys for certain teams, but uh, he certainly was for us. Joe, I, I've been in a, a few draft rooms over the years. And one, when I heard this story and, you know, you're going to have to tell me whether this actually happened in this case, I kept thinking back when I saw that you traded up to get Jermaine Johnson, it reminded me in 2017, I was in the 49ers draft room in the first round and it was around 12 or 13 or 14 you could just tell this team really wanted Reuben Foster uh the the linebacker at the time from Alabama and they were determined to try to move up to get him and they called every team on that list they started at like 12 13 14 hey we want to move up what did it take uh, we're not interested. They must have got the door slammed in their face 15 times until finally they were able to move up and get him. And look, it didn't work out. He didn't become a great player. But I was so interested in the zeal at the time, Parag Marate, who was trying to make the trade for the 49ers. It was like an hour and a half of like speed dating with every GM in the league. Come on, you want to do something. And they couldn't do it for the longest time. But yeah. that is the thought that went through my mind. I said, I wonder if Joe Douglas basically started calling teams once I heard how much he loved Jermaine Johnson. So did you try to, to get him starting at some point in the round? Yeah, it was uh, right there around 15. And uh, so, you know, for, so 15 to 26, uh, you know, a lot of no's. Um, Smile, dial, try to make the pitch. Come, you know, you want to come back to 35. A lot of no's, a lot of that's too far back. Um, a lot of, hey, we, we're trying to keep the fifth year option available in the, in yeah. the first rounder. And so each time you hang up the phone, uh, you look over to coach and you say, this is where he goes. This is probably, this is probably where he goes or a team trade. There was a lot of trades and there was a lot yeah. of trades in that time frame. And you so must like, have thought when you saw some of those trades, yeah. they're moving up for Jermaine Johnson, yeah, just like we, we want to. Yeah. And so you see some trades coming, you're like, oh, yeah, we, we lost out on this one. And so um, but we, 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 we were persistent. We kept trying. We, we tried to stay uh, you know, a couple teams in front of the clock just to see if there's uh, any chance we can get something worked out. And, you know, I think with uh, Tennessee having picked um, their wide receiver a little bit earlier, maybe they that gave them a little bit more flexibility to move back into the top of two so that we could we could move up i thought that was a good uh i thought it was good value for you first of all that you didn't have to touch your 2023 draft and that it's basically a two with three and a five and then you get a three back you know a lower three i thought the value was good but how how much did that sort of test you? Uh, how difficult was that for you? And in the end, how rewarding was it that it worked out? Uh, I think when we from the outset, we were trying to work on a deal where we wouldn't have to give up both of our twos. 
Um, right. So so keep the flexibility of, of uh, having pick 38 at the time. Um, so it, it was very rewarding to get a deal worked out um, where we give up the two, we flop the three and the five um, so that we, you know, we didn't have to give up any next year's picks. We didn't have to give up uh, both of our second round picks. So, so it, it, uh, it, it, it kept our flexibility, so to speak, so that we could stay fluid in other deals throughout the draft. One other little probably inside baseball question for you is you moved up from 38 to 36 to get Brees Hall and you traded with the Giants. And I wonder how suspicious were you that either Houston at 37 or anybody was going to go for Brees Hall at that time? Yeah, you, you know, that was a, a, a slightly similar situation to Jermaine, in all honesty. We, we, tried, um, we tried to get up a little sooner uh, than we did. And um, we, we had a hunch we had a hunch that Brees wasn't going to make it to us at 38. Um, and for us, this was another situation where um, even if there wasn't a hunch, you know, this is this guy so far up on the board. Let, let's try to make a move to get him because you don't know who else is trying to get up in front of us or trade up to the top around um, for a player. And so, and last year, you, the, really the last two years, you've seen backs go high in the second round. And, and within the first five, 10 picks of second round. And, um, you know, we, when, we, when we pinpointed Brees as a guy that was not only our highest guy on the board, but a guy that uh, we felt could come in and be a, a, a playmaker for us, you know, say, hey, let, let's, let's go get this guy. And uh, ultimately we were able to get a deal done with Joe and over uh, with the Giants and um, we're, we're, we're fired up about it. Brees Hall, it strikes me, just from what I've read about him, has a really good chance to be the kind of versatile back that NFL teams really want now, that he's just as comfortable running a wheel route out of the backfield as he is in running between the tackles. Did you feel like he is sort of a 2022 NFL back? Well, we felt that he was a dynamic playmaker with with a consistent level of high production and felt that he was a guy, like you said, that could help not only create explosives in the run game, but also create explosive plays in the pass game. And we felt he was a, a great character addition to the team and, and the running back room. And um, with, with some already strong pieces in the room, like, like Michael Carter and Tevin Coleman and Ty Johnson, that uh, really there's some guys in there that can beat you two ways, you know, in the run, run our pass game. And he certainly adds to that. Joe, two other things. One, uh, you obviously know that your quarterback, uh, Zach Wilson, nothing great happens in the NFL without your quarterback playing well. Tell me what you have seen like especially late last year and in this off season early on uh, in his development that gives you hope that he might be the guy. Yeah. You know, I would, I would even go back to um, earlier in the season and I mentioned it a little bit in the last press conference we had, but you know, our staff was all in on, on developing young, young players. And uh, we, we had so many rookies out there on the field playing and obviously Zach was a, high profile um, rookie quarterback for us. And 
um, every young player goes through highs and lows. And, um, you know, Zach, Zach wasn't the only rookie that, that was going through that. Um, obviously it gets magnified when you're the, when you're the starting quarterback. Um, but to see him, see his resilience through the year, um, adversity all through the year, right. In terms of wins, losses, uh, performance, injury, he comes back from injury. Um, he's locked in, he's focused. He doesn't have all of his, his full complement of starting skill receivers uh, and backs. And he plays, he plays really good ball down the stretch, you know, um, played one of those better games against the defending Super Bowl champions. And, you know, really we were, we were in position to, uh, to have a, a big win in that game. And uh, that, that was a real, real credit to, to Zach and the way he takes, he took care of the football, the way he operated, executed the offense. And he wasn't trying to do anything, but uh, what was asked of him. So that, that, that gave us a lot of hope moving forward. And then for him to attack the offseason the way that he has, um, starting with his, his uh, USA tour, uh, working out with teammates in Nashville and Miami and Phoenix and um, you know, creating those bonds and creating that chemistry. Um, I think there's a, there's a, lot, of, a lot of good bonds, strong bonds and, and, uh, and camaraderie being built. And you know, he's at the forefront of that, try, trying to uh, do that with, with his guys. And it's carried over here in the first couple of weeks of OTA. So uh, again, it's cliche, but keep stacking these days, keep stacking these weeks and uh, good things are going to happen. I think you probably had to know that he'd be a worker bee when last year before the draft you you heard and I'm sure you talked to him about it that he would drive 10 hours from Provo to LA to uh, work out with his quarterback coach and yeah. uh, you know he wouldn't wouldn't make a big deal of it he wouldn't say anything about it but you know he was the kind of guy too who you know he didn't want a lot of handouts from his parents and he was doing DoorDash a lot of times to support himself. And I just thought when I heard those stories, I said, this guy's going to leave no stone unturned. Yeah. I mean, I read your, it was such a great profile on him and those, all those drives. And uh, I remember at the pro day, cause I, I it, it was a great profile. I remember at the pro day, I got a chance to meet his, his dad, big Mike. And, and I said, Hey Mike, your, your son's a much better man than I am. And he goes, why do you say that? I said, I wouldn't be able to drive past Las Vegas without stopping. <laughs> because I, I said, I don't know how he was able to do that. <laughs> so, but you um, know what the interesting thing was about that? And I, I say this, Joe, remember when you were 21 years old? Oh, yeah. And just remember, if you wanted something bad enough, you didn't give a crap what the obstacles were in your way. You know, you wanted to be a football player you, you know, and then later on, you want to be a scout and you're going to drop everything to make sure you get Joe Flacco right at Delaware. You know, I mean, yeah. you're, it's there are these things that are probably in your way, but you say, ah, I'll deal with it. You know, and that's yeah. that's what it struck me was the case with, you know, with with him that I think he saw what could make him a better quarterback. And he said, OK, let's do it. Yeah. Yeah. And a little bit like Jermaine, like we were talking about, you know, just whatever, whatever you got to do to get the job done. Yeah. I'm going to ask you just one other thing. So all of these great things that have happened to you guys, and you've had an excellent off season. And 
I wonder, how do you turn, you know, you guys haven't won in years. And how do you turn great expectations into a great team? Well, I think, I think it starts with the energy and the excitement that Coach Sala and his staff bring to the building every day and the, um, the buy-in that they've created with these guys. And Coach Sala uh, and these guys are such fantastic teachers, and they want nothing more than each one of these guys to reach their ultimate goal and reach the contract that they get the contract that they want to get. And so um, I feel like we brought in players uh, especially in the last few, last couple off seasons that are just unbelievably competitive guys that love ball. And so um, I think it's kind of, it's a ground roots start. It just starts with, with, with the P it always starts with the people. Right. And so it starts with the, the coaching staff. It starts with the players that we bring in and really it, it's so I mean, I've been around being around football my entire life and you, you end up regurgitating all the, all the things that you're, coaches have said to you and your mentors have said to you in your past it's like you never look up at the scoreboard if you focus on taking the right step if you focus on on uh you know making sure you make the right call get the check if you do all these little things right eventually the big things will take care of themselves and so we know we know uh you know the task at hand we know um that uh we need to win more games uh we know um we know what's being asked of us but um, we're, we're going to try to do the little things right, right every day, stack, stack days and weeks and months together. And, you know, the scoreboard is going to turn in our favor. Joe Douglas, general manager of the New York Jets. Thanks so much. You've had a great uh, first four months of this year. Now you got to have a great last eight months of the year. That's right. That's right. Thanks, Peter. My thanks to Joe Douglas. And as always, uh, to my friend Paul Burmeister of NBC Sports for a pretty lively hour plus of conversation. Uh, here we are at approaching the middle of May. And I've always been one of those people. I love the off season because I love, like I love baseball. I love doing other things. I love doing things with my family. But man, it just seems like we continue to encroach on more and more time in the off season because the NFL has invented all these new uh, and, and really honestly quite interesting things uh, about the game that for years uh, were not really a part of a very public off season. So anyway, Paul, thank you. And uh, we'll be back next week uh, with one of the final two editions of the Peter King podcast for this season. And then we will take a break and come back again in July. Thanks a lot for listening to the podcast, everybody. 